You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. It is because we are born at enmity with God and we are born children of His wrath and we are avowed enemies and we hate Him from the moment of our birth and but by the grace of God we would continue in that avowed hatred and enemy status but by His sovereign grace He reaches down and saves us. But those who are never redeemed, those who do not repent of their sin and trust Christ for salvation live their lives as enemies and some of them kind of manifest this avowed enemy status where they take the reality of their spiritual condition as spiritual enemies of God and they translate that into a physical, verbal animosity and war against God. And history is peppered with such men and women who have fought the Lord. Sinclair Lewis, who was the 1930s Nobel Prize winner, in his novel, Elmer Gantry, portrayed the leading character as an evangelist who was also an unceasing and unrepentant drunken fornicator. And he mocked Christianity. Lewis died as a hopeless drunk outside of Rome. There's Frederick Nietzsche who said Christianity was the religion for the weak. And he mocked Christians and mocked God. He died insane. Ernest Hemingway. Ernest Hemingway actually bragged about being able to live a life of unrepentant sin without any consequences. Uh, And no consequences? After his fourth marriage and countless sordid affairs, in a state of mental imbalance and illness, he put a double-barreled shotgun to his head in Ketchum, Idaho on July 2nd, 1961, and ended his life. Sin without consequences? And time doesn't permit me to even give you a, a brief rundown of the men and women throughout history who have made themselves enemies of God and thought that they could fight against Him and overthrow His church and overthrow His Word and overthrow His purposes. Men like Charles Darwin and Pontius Pilate and Nebuchadnezzar and Madeline Murray O'Hare, all dead and gone, all in a grave, and yet the church is still here, the church still exists, and the church still presses on, doesn't it? Psalm 2. Remember what Psalm 2 says? Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. And He who sits in the heavens laughs. He scoffs at them. The rulers of the earth take their counsel against the Lord and against His Christ, saying, We will tear their fetters apart and cast them away from us. And the Lord sits in heaven and He chuckles at that. He scoffs at that. No list of enemies of God would be complete without including in it the names of most, if not all, of the members of Herod's family. And I think that the Lord scoffed at the Herods. And He laughed at all of them. You remember Herod the Great? He was the patriarch of the whole family. It was Herod the Great who, in Matthew chapter 2, slaughtered all of the infants two years old and under in a search and an attempt to try and kill the baby Jesus. It was Herod the Great who had his wife murdered and three of his sons murdered. He gave birth to a whole dynasty of bloodthirsty men. Herod the Tetrarch was the ungodly man who fought against God and his prophets, 
had John the Baptist beheaded and tried Jesus and had him executed. Herod the Tetrarch was deposed by his bloodthirsty nephew, Herod Agrippa, who shows up in Acts chapter 12, and he continues this long war against God. And it began, as far as we can tell from history, and as far as we can tell from the Acts narrative, in Acts chapter 12, it began by putting James the Apostle to death with the sword. And we saw that that pleased the Jews. He rounded up other Christians and got Peter put in prison with the intent of trying him publicly and boosting his approval ratings, and he was going to have Peter executed. And the Lord sits in heaven and He just scoffs at that. (laughs) And He gives to us one of the most humorous tales in all of the book of Acts, how Peter was there in the cell sleeping soundly because he wasn't worried about a thing. And the angel came in and the light shone brightly in the cell and it didn't wake Peter up and the angel kicked him in the side. Get up, Peter, we're leaving. Peter gets up and groggy as he is, the angel has to tell him to get dressed and he does, puts on his cloak, girds up his robe and they, they head out of the prison And Peter thinks the whole thing is a dream or a vision until he gets outside and the angel disappears and he comes to himself and realizes that the Lord had sent his angel to deliver him from all that the Jewish people were expecting and all of the sinister plans of Herod. And now Herod finds himself in the unenviable position of having made himself an enemy of God and he has been humiliated. But it's just the beginning of his humiliation. The end of Acts chapter 12 gives us the rest of the story. Herod's death and his demise, like a raw egg thrown up against a marble slab, Herod comes to nothing. And that is the way it is with all men and all women, all kings, all rulers, all principalities and powers who dare to bring themselves against God and His anointed and His word and His church. They are like rotten, they are like raw eggs thrown up against a slab of marble. They come to nothing and they are destroyed. And that's Herod's end. And it's instructive. And I want you to notice three things that we learn from Herod's death in Acts chapter 12. Beginning in verse 18, we're going to go through to the end of verse 24. The first thing that we learn is that in spite of the efforts of the mightiest of men, God's work cannot be denied. His work cannot be denied. Look at verse 18 of Acts chapter 12. When day came, there was no small disturbance among the soldiers as to what could have become of Peter. You think? That's kind of an understatement, isn't it? There was no small disturbance. You might read that. There was a panic among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. There was some point around the break of day when those Roman soldiers looked down at the chains that had had bound them to Peter and they noticed that the chains were still on their wrists, but there was no Peter at the other end of those chains. And one guard stood on the one side of where Peter was, and another guard stood on the other side of where Peter was, and they searched the prison for him. They looked down and Peter was gone. They had heard nothing odd. They had seen nothing odd. They had felt nothing odd. But come daybreak, they are still there. The chains are still there. The doors are still locked. All of the guards are still at their post. But there's only one thing that's different than the way they it was the night before, and that's that Peter is nowhere to be found. And it says there was no small disturbance. Can you imagine the soldiers? Looking in every corner, every nook, every cranny of that cell, looking for moved stones, checking the shackles to figure out how it is that this ancient Houdini could have slipped loose from those shackles that nobody else had been able to get out of. The doors were all locked and they would search every cell, not just Peter's. They would search the entire prison, the whole compound, everything within those gates. There was no small disturbance. Why are they panicking? 
just a common prisoner? It's not just a common prisoner. This was Herod Agrippa's PR stunt. This was Peter. This is Herod Agrippa's attempt to boost his approval ratings. He is trying to curry favor with the Jews and the Jewish masses. There is a trial coming the next day. All of the public has been made aware of it. It's a, it's a published, it's a, it's a promoted thing. Everybody in Jerusalem is expecting this to happen. And now the prisoner has escaped. And there was a law in Jewish or in Roman law that stated that if a prisoner escaped from prison, the guards who were guarding that prisoner were subject to the same punishment that that prisoner would have received. Well, what punishment was Peter going to get? Execution. There was no small disturbance among the guards as to what had become of Peter. They knew that their death warrant had just been signed and that they had to find Peter before Herod found out Peter was missing. And it wouldn't take long before the finger pointing would start. Wasn't me. Wasn't me. He went to sleep. I saw him go to sleep. I was awake all night long. It wasn't me. It was my subordinates. It wasn't me. It was the master. I don't know what happened. And the finger pointing would go. No small disturbance. <laughs> now, Herod did find out. Yeah, you know, when you call Peter, bring him in for trial. We can't produce him. He's not there. What are they going to say? Eventually, they've got to break the news to Herod. We don't have a Peter to put on trial, King. Well, what became of him? They can't answer that question. So the text says in verse 19 that when Herod had searched for him, that is Peter, and had not found him, he examined the guards. Herod put out an APB for Peter. Find that apostle. So you can imagine that Herod would have searched not only the entire prison, but everything that he had access to in Jerusalem. He wanted Peter's head. And he was not going to be tricked or squirmed out of by this little Galilean no-name fisherman. Herod was going to have his way. You can imagine that Herod would have gone to every place where he thought Christians would have frequented. He would have gone to everybody's house where he thought Christians might have gathered. And he would have searched. But Peter's gone underground. Remember last week, Peter went to another place. He basically disappeared. He wasn't in Jerusalem. He wasn't where Herod could find him. And now Herod is faced with a dilemma. You see, when you make yourself God's enemy, it puts you in the corner, doesn't it? Here's Herod's dilemma. I can either repent of my sin and acknowledge that God has supernaturally delivered this man and set him free from prison and, and frustrated my plans and that I was wrong and that what I did was wickedness and that I'm on the wrong side. I can do that. Or I can cover it up, place the blame on somebody else, and then run. What do you think Herod did? You know what he did. When they couldn't find Peter, they brought the guards in to question them. I would love to have been a wall on those, uh, fly on the wall in those proceedings. Tell me, where's Peter? We don't know. Well, what happened? Well, it was getting dark. Peter was there. I was chained to him. So-and-so was chained to him on the other side. The doors were locked. The guards were in place. The sun set. The light went down. And then what happened? Sun came up, and at daybreak we looked down, Peter was gone. Did you see anything odd? Not a thing. Did you hear anything out of place? Not a thing. Did anybody come in to visit him? Nobody that we could see, King. Where's Peter?
What was the question again? Where's Peter? They can't say anything. Anybody with eyes, anybody with half a brain can understand this was a supernatural act by a sovereign and mighty God. And Herod won't admit that. So he has the soldiers put to death. In essence, that is Herod's way of displaying publicly these men are responsible for his escape. And so those four men that guarded Peter were led away to execution. And then Luke says at the end of verse 19, then he, that is Herod, went down from Judea to Caesarea and was spending time there. He placed the blame on the soldiers and then he ran. He ran to Caesarea, which was the entertainment capital of the ancient world. That was the Vegas of the Mediterranean, so to speak. Herod would have gone there mostly to just sort of cleanse his mind and get away from the situation, but there's sort of a political reason as well. Herod has been publicly embarrassed. He has eggs on his face. What he had intended as a, a PR boost to his ratings and his popularity has ended up being for him a colossal embarrassment. And it looks to all involved as if Peter and the Christians have pulled one over on King Herod. He's escaped. And the news is out. There was supposed to be a trial. Now there is no trial. And the only ones who are tried are these four guards who supposedly let him go. Incompetent would have been the, the rumor and the thinking about Herod and his guards. These guys are incompetent. They can't even guard a simple prisoner, a Galilean fisherman in a maximum security prison. Embarrassing. So he goes to Caesarea, I think, to just get away from Jerusalem. Friends, you cannot deny God's work. Herod, as much as he wanted to, could shift the blame. He could run from it. But anybody with eyes could see this was a sovereign, supernatural act of a mighty God who set Peter free. His work cannot be denied. Second, his glory cannot be diminished. Verse 20, Luke tells us, that he was very angry, that is, Herod, was very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. And with one accord they came to him, and having won over Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they were asking for peace because their country was fed by the king's country. Now verse 20 is basically a lot of international politics that Luke gives us that sort of sets up this scene which becomes Herod's demise. Herod was angry with the cities of Tyre and Sidon who were outside of his jurisdiction. And although they were outside of his jurisdiction, Those two cities and Phoenicia, the surrounding area, were fed by the king's country, verse 20 says. That is to say that they had trade relations between Tyre and Sidon and Herod's kingdom. And there was these trade relations that had gone all the way back really to the time of Solomon. And Tyre and Sidon had bought wheat from Herod's country. Herod became angry with those cities. Luke doesn't tell us why. Just that he was furious with them. And so they sent a delegation seeking peace with Herod. Herod had put in place a wheat embargo. He refused to sell food to Tyre and Sidon because he was upset with them. So they sent a delegation because they were hurting to Herod to earn his peace. So they're wanting to butter him up. They're wanting to have peace with him again and smooth over whatever it is. So they come to Caesarea where Herod is and they win over Blastus who is Herod's chamberlain. I don't know if they paid him a bribe or if they just cajoled him or blackmailed or whatever they did. It worked. They won over Blastus, and Blastus helped convince Herod to lift the grain embargo, the trade embargo, and resume normal relations with Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon were hurting because they needed food. And Herod had them right where he wanted them. And so they come, and they win them over, and Herod determines to lift the grain embargo. That's the international politics that sets the stage for this. And then Luke says in verse 21, 
on an appointed day, Herod, having put on his royal apparel, took his seat on the rostrum and began delivering an address to them. And the people kept crying out, the voice of a God and not of a man. So there was an appointed day when this normal trade relations was going to be announced and made public. Everything was going to be mended. And so they set up this appointed day. And Herod comes out onto the rostrum, out onto the stage, dressed in his kingly apparel. And he begins to deliver an address. And the people say to him, the voice of a God and not of a man. Why would they say something like that? They're trying to butter up Herod, right? They've come to him to win him over and to establish normal relations. They're doing, they're playing to his ego. And so they're ascribing deity to him. This is not the only historical account we have of the death of Herod. Josephus, who would have been seven years old, is a Jewish historian, he would have been seven years old when this event happened. Josephus writes in his book, Jewish Antiquities, he He gives us some details that Luke leaves out, not because Luke is trying to hide anything, but just because they look at it from different perspectives. Josephus describes it this way. After the seventh year of rule, Agrippa came to Caesarea to celebrate games in honor of Caesar. So he'd come from Jerusalem, and one of the things he was going to do was to take part in these games that they were going to hold to honor the Caesar. The Caesar was Claudius. You remember it was his boyhood friend that he had grown up with who pulled him out of prison when he became emperor of Rome and and made uh, Herod Agrippa the ruler over all of the kingdom that his grandfather, Herod the Great, had ruled over? Well, he's in Caesarea to honor Claudius. Claudius's birthday was the beginning of August. That's when these games were held, the beginning of August, which is right after the grain harvest. So that makes sense because those people would have been there to buy grain now that the grain has been harvested, first part of August. And so they, they come at that point in time, and Josephus records this, At daybreak, he entered the theater dressed in a garment of woven silver which gleamed in the rays of the rising sun. His flatterers started addressing him as a god, and then he looked up and saw an owl perched on a rope overhead, and he was struck with intense pain. That's Josephus' record of this day. On the back of your bulletin insert is a picture of an amphitheater in Caesarea. That is the amphitheater at which Herod was struck that day. They've rebuilt it since then to look what it would have looked like originally back when Herod the Great built that. It's Herod the Great who built that amphitheater in Caesarea. Herod the Great who built most of Caesarea. And today, even today, they have live musical performances and drama there. And you can see on the left-hand side of the picture, that is the Mediterranean Sea off to the left. And you can see how, and that would be west, and you can see how the, the Colosseum or the amphitheater is circled around that stage, which is sort of in the middle So they would gather there the crowd and they would be looking across the stage with that big Mediterranean Sea as the backdrop to the west. They would be watching whatever play or drama or musical activity unfolded on stage. Well, if Josephus' details are right, then you can picture this scene. It is early in the morning and the sun is coming up from the east behind the amphitheater. And the first place that it would hit would be the stage. And it is at that moment that Herod Agrippa struts out on stage in all of his pomp and all of his circumstance and with the music. And Josephus said he was dressed in a woven robe of silver. Silver woven into this robe. Luke says it was his kingly apparel. So as Herod stood there on stage, everybody else would be in the shadow of the the Colosseum and the amphitheater and the sun would be to their back and what would they see on stage but this man who just glimmered in the sun rays of the morning sun and it would be just shining at them and he would begin to speak and all of the people got caught up in all of the pomp and the circumstances and the excitement and they knew Herod was arrogant and they were going to play to his ego and they started to shout out the voice of a God and not of a man and Herod ate it up. 
Loved it. Keep it coming. And he just basked in the light of that glory. And there he sits, shimmering in the sunlight, and everybody sees this sparkling spectacle of a man on stage. And then Luke says, an angel of the Lord struck him. Josephus says, suddenly he was struck with intense pain. And then Josephus records that Herod called out, I whom you call a God am under the sentence of death. And then he left the stage. It was Herod's pride that did him in, friends. And God struck him dead. Herod refused to give God glory. It was God who was to be glorified. It's God who was to be worshipped. Herod exists for the glory of God, and God will either be glorified in his life or in his death. Herod chose that God would be glorified in his death. They can't diminish God's glory. And so God struck him. Is it really that big of a crime to not give God glory? Is it really that big of an issue that it warrants the death of a man with an intense, agonizing pain? Well, remember what Nebuchadnezzar learned? Walking around on the rooftop of his palace, he looked out over Babylon and said, Is this not the glorious Babylon that I have built by the might of my hand and my power for my majesty? And while the words were in his mouth, Daniel says, a voice came to him from heaven saying, Nebuchadnezzar, to you it has been declared, sovereignty has been taken from you. And you're going to make your home with the beasts of the field and you're going to eat grass until seven periods of time have passed over you and until you recognize that it is the Most High who rules in the affairs of men and He gives it to whomever He pleases. And instantly He was struck and He crawled around on His hands and feet and ate grass for seven years. Romans chapter 1 says that the sin that condemns us to hell is the fact that all men are guilty of not honoring God. Although the invisible things of Him are seen in the things that are made, man refuses to honor God and to give Him thanks. And for that reason, he is justly condemned. Because man in his unsaved, unrepentant, unregenerate state refuses to give God glory. And Isaiah 42.8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name and my glory, I will not give to another. And Herod tried to take it. Herod tried to bask in it. They ascribed deity to him, and he was fine with that. And he didn't turn around, and he didn't honor God. And so God struck him. And Luke says he was eaten with worms, and he died. Now, that phrase is exactly the opposite of what you might expect to read. You might expect to read that he died and then was eaten by worms, right? You died, you're put in the ground, and then you're eaten by worms. But that's not what Luke says. Luke says he was eaten with worms, and he died. In other words, it is being eaten by worms that was the cause of Herod's death. Now, what is it that happened here, and how are we to understand what's going on? People have tried to explain this in all kinds of creative ways. Uh, Herod was stuck, struck with appendicitis. Herod had a bleeding ulcer that caused his pain, or, or whatever it is. Look, Luke is a medical doctor, and I'll just accept Luke's assessment of what it was. He was eaten by worms, and he died. That's what Dr. Luke records. He was eaten by worms. And he died. Whatever it is that caused his death, he was eaten from the inside out by worms. Now, intestinal worms, internal worms is a common thing in that area, particularly in that day. A book, Science and the Bible, Science in the Bible, <clears throat> published by Moody Press, gives this description of what likely happened to Herod. The heaviest infection, speaking of, of tapeworms, the heaviest inspections 
come from areas where sheep and cattle are raised. Sheep and cattle serve as the intermediate host for the parasite. The dog eats the infected meat and then man gets the eggs from the dog, usually by fecal contamination of hair. The disease is characterized by the formation of cysts, generally on the right lobe of the liver. These may extend down into the abdominal cavity, and the rupture of such a cyst may release as many as two million scoluses, that's uh, tapeworm larvae, inside the infected person. And when the cyst ruptures, the entrance of cellular debris along with the scoluses may cause sudden death. In Herod's case, it didn't cause sudden death. Luke says that he died. Josephus tells him tells us that he took five days for Herod to die. Maybe it wasn't tapeworms. Maybe it was intestinal roundworms. Richard Longnecker, in his commentary on the book of Acts, writes this. Luke's reference to worms suggests an infection by intestinal roundworms, which grow as long as 10 to 16 inches and feed on the nutrient fluids in the intestines. Bunches of roundworms can obstruct the intestines, causing severe pain, copious vomiting of worms, and death. Now, if it took him five days to die, and if during those five days of agonizing death he was vomiting up copiously worms, then that would give us an indication as to how everybody knew how Herod died. Right? Whether it is a tapeworm and a cyst, whether it is a round worm that bunches up in the intestines, it was an act of God, and the angel of the Lord struck Herod, and he was seized with intense pain, and after five agonizing, long, humiliating days, he suffered and died because he was eaten from the inside out by worms. Now, we haven't had this much fun since we talked about Judas spilling his guts in Acts chapter 1, have we? And aren't you glad that the potluck is next week and not immediately after this service? Because nobody would touch the spaghetti after this message. Herod, as an act of judgment upon him, in the middle of all that glory and splendor, shining like a sun god, he doubled over in his middle and he cried out to the crowd, I whom you call a god am under the sentence of death. And they drug him off the stage and for five days he suffered a humiliating, degrading, painful death. He was eaten by worms, and he died. God's glory cannot be diminished by those who attack him. God's glory cannot be diminished. His work cannot be denied. His glory cannot be diminished. And look at verse 24. His purpose cannot be defeated. But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. Ah, that's water to a thirsty tongue. The word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. It's just the opposite of Herod. Herod set himself up, and he fell, and he was destroyed, and God judged him. But the Word, on the other hand, and when Luke uses the, the term the Word of the Lord, what he means by that is the proclamation of the Gospel by the church. Believers proclaimed the Gospel. They proclaimed the Word. The Word is the preaching of the Gospel. The preaching of the Gospel is the Word of God. And so for the Word to be multiplied and to grow means that the church and the Gospel and the truth advanced. And it went forward. And Herod could not stop it. He had rounded up Christians. He had killed James with the sword. He had sent Peter into hiding. But the Word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. And Herod could not stop that. Saul could not stop it. You remember he tried? And what did the Lord do? He arrested him on the road to Emmaus and saved him. God didn't choose to exercise that grace with Herod. 
He had enough apostles, so he struck Herod dead. You want to fight against God's church? You want to fight against his word? You want to take it upon yourself to be an enemy of God? Friends, that is a warning to you and I to never take honor, never take glory, or never take adoration that belongs to God and to God alone. Because everything we have and everything we are and everything we're given belongs to Him. And He is to be honored in all of it. His work cannot be denied. His glory cannot be diminished. And His purpose can never be defeated. If I were to give you two phrases that sort of sum up all the message of Acts chapter 12, it would be this. No man can prevail against God. Herod could not. Saul could not. No man can prevail against God. They rise, they fall, they fight, they put forth all of their effort. They seek to destroy the church. They seek to persecute believers. They seek to make a name for themselves. And no sooner do they die than they are forgotten. Because no man can prevail against God. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes this, Whatever the appearances may be, however much they may suggest the contrary at different times and in different epochs, God's plan is certain. Nothing can frustrate it. Nothing can prevent it from being worked out to the smallest detail. And that is, of course, the major theme of the Bible. We are given an account of the end as well as the beginning. The whole thing is there. We can rest assured that no power of man, nor of earth, nor of hell can ever prevent what God has purposed in His eternal counsel before the foundation of the world. No man can stop it. The Scriptures agree. Job 42, I know that thou can doest all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Psalm 115, verse 3, our God is in the heavens and He does whatever He pleases. Daniel 4.35, Nebuchadnezzar says, All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and you do whatever you please according to the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What hast thou done? No man can prevail against God. Second, no man is responsible for the triumph of the church. No man is responsible for the triumph of the church. The word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. And what can you attach that to? James? He's dead. Uh, Peter? He's basically rendered completely ineffective. He's in hiding somewhere. I'm not hearing from him right now. But the word of the Lord continued to multiply and to grow. See, friends, this, the success of the gospel, the success of the kingdom, the success of God's church and his purposes are not attached to any man. It wasn't attached to James. It wasn't attached to Peter. And we're about to change our focus and look at the Apostle Paul. And now is as good a time as ever to be reminded that it's not attached to Paul. If Paul were to die, the word of the Lord would continue to go forth and to multiply and to grow. Because the church triumphant is not attached. It's, it's triumph, it's advance, is not attached to any one person. The church is bigger than you. God's purpose is bigger than me. And it's bigger than any church leader you know or could name. The triumph of the church, the triumph of the Word, and of the Gospel is not attached to any one person. Now what a change of fortunes chapter 12 has brought us. You notice that? As chapter 12 opens, Herod is on the rampage. By the time chapter 12 closes, Herod's in the grave. The beginning of chapter 12, James is dead. Peter's in prison, and Herod is triumphing. By the end of chapter 12, Peter is free, Herod is dead, and the Word of God is triumphing. Why is that? Because the war against God is not a war that can ever be won, nor will it ever be won. And those who face themselves off against God find themselves always on the losing side of history. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank You as our Lord of the church triumphant.
that there is nothing that men may do, there is nothing that men may say that can stop the advance of your purpose, of your church, and of your gospel. And we just pray, Father, that you would remind us again of that truth and help us to be encouraged by the fact that it is so much bigger than we are. It is so much bigger than us individually or than this church. And even though we may pass from the scene and be long forgotten, your word will continue to multiply and grow and advance. We thank you for that comfort and for that consolation. And may we always be mindful of the, of the death of Herod and what it teaches us about honoring and glorifying you. We thank you in the name of our great God and Savior to whom we give all of the glory and honor for he is so worthy of it. Jesus Christ, in his name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.